and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. The 90s were a very weird time for animation. An amazing time, but a strange time. We got some of the greatest movies ever made, some of the greatest movie music ever made, studios fighting tooth and nail to continue to push the boundaries of the medium, and some studios just fighting just to fight. And one very specific subgenre of film emerged during this time, which can be best summarized as animated films whose subject matter probably shouldn't have been touched, but it did have really great animation and even better music. And shockingly, there are three films that satisfy this description. 1995's Pocahontas, 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the subject of today's episode, 1997's Anastasia. Anastasia is a special case because it's the most Disney princess movie that was never made by Disney. Couple this with the fact that the film covers the subject of the disappearance of Anastasia Romanoff, whose fate at the time was still unknown. Anastasia is a film that manages to straddle between a curious place in animation history and a very curious place in history history too. And this week, we're going to take a brief deep dive into it all. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So to get us all on the same page here, I'd like to read you the common sense media description of Anastasia. In this retelling of the mystery surrounding Russian Tsar Nicholas II's daughter, little Anastasia and her adored grandmother, voiced by Angela Lansbury, are separated after escaping the execution of the royal family during the Russian Revolution. Years later, Anya, voiced by Meg Ryan, who remembers nothing of her early years, leaves the orphanage where she has been raised and goes off in search of her family. She's discovered by a couple of con men who have been searching for a young woman they can pass off as Anastasia to get a reward from the Dowinger grandmother, who now lives in Paris. They convince her that they are just trying to help her find whether she's in fact the missing Anastasia, never suspecting that she really is. Trying to stop her is the evil specter Rasputin, who becomes so angry that pieces of his face and body fall off and have to be reapplied. End quote. So that's Anastasia. Um, it's a very weird way to end that description, but that is that is the movie. That is essentially like in a nutshell what the movie is about. Um, I remember watching this movie. It had to have been like in school or something for the. I think I don't think I like owned it or anything like that. Um, I'm sure like when we got to the like in like history class or whatever. When we got to the part talking about the Russian Revolution, I think that's that might have been when we were watching it, um, just to be like, oh, this loosely connects to what we're talking about, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, that movie is uh, it's kind of insane when you think about it, because it's not only this movie is based off of a 1956 movie of the same name, Anastasia, which was based off of a play, Anastasia. Um, and this version of the of the story, uh, like the movie, has also gotten a stage play that was on Broadway for a couple of years, too. I think it only like just closed on Broadway. So needless to say, like th- we are enamored with the story of, of Anastasia. So it's not all that shocking that it would eventually make its way into the world of animation um, in trying to tell this very interesting story for 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 kids. 
So it was made by a 20th Century Fox and it was directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman. And so if you if you remember, I mentioned that Anastasia was the best Disney princess movie that Disney never made. Like the elements were all there. It was a beautiful and headstrong protagonist. It had an I want song, which if you don't know, the I want song is like a tradition that kind of stems from the theater, which basically is just like whenever a princess sits on a rock or sings to the air in a meadow or whatever it is, she sings a song about what she wants. It's a declaration of her deepest desires and wishes and hopes for her future and her life and everything. And usually after an I want song is when she starts to pursue whatever that thing is. Um, it had a furry sidekick and a little dog named Puka, who is so cute in this movie, and a quest to find love. And in finding love, she finds herself, that whole thing. That formula had very much been perfected um, in, in this movie. And it's best to consider like how that happened with the context of, of when Anastasia came out. So like I said, it came out in 97. And in 97, we were kind of on the tail end or really like in the closing years of a period in time called the Disney Renaissance, which basically is best understood as the period, like it was a 10 year long period from about 1989 to 1999, where Disney was just churning out the hits. Like it was The Little Mermaid, it was Aladdin, it was Beauty and the Beast, um, Mulan, Hercules, like Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, like all these movies came out around this time. I mean, this, these are the movies that I think, you know, like, of course you have Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and, you know, movies like that. But like this 10 year long period was where I think most people's understanding and like memories with Disney are tied to. That's like, to me, where I think most people associate Disney with with as far as like you know movies and and things go so Anastasia comes out in 97 and has it has been in production probably for at least you know two or three years before that so the the formula of how you make a good Disney princess movie had been pretty much perfected at this point um like I said it began with Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty really going all the way back to Snow White um and it was, I think, refined in 1989 with The Little Mermaid. And so by that time, it was all but sure, like, this is how you make a Disney princess film. So it's not only that, but also, like I mentioned, it was directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman. And these two people are very, very specific and instrumental into understanding the very Disney-ness of, of Anastasia, even though it was not a Disney film. So Don Bluth was a animator at Disney. Um, I think he worked on Sleeping Beauty and then he left for a little bit and then came back in the seventies, um, to work on films like Fox and the Hound and things like that. And so then, uh, as, as time went on and the company was starting to change, the seventies was a very weird time for, for Disney animation. Like, I think we now understand Disney to be this major media conglomerate who can't, you know, like who can't fail, who can't like just crumble or anything like that. But in the seventies, it was not 
it was not so. Like that was not the vibe of the company. Um, in a lot of ways, Disney almost kind of went under in the 70s and 80s. And it wasn't until, and it was, it kind of came after basically the death of Walt Disney, I think in 1966, brought about a period of time where Disney as a company truly didn't know who they were. Um, you know, the head of the company who built it from the ground up is gone. There's been like a, a shift in power and no one knew really what to do with Disney. And so, yes, they were, you know, churning out classics like Fox and the Hound, um, Robin Hood, like, you know, movies like that. But they those movies don't tend to have the same lasting power as the movies that came either before it or after it. Um, and that was just due mainly to like a consistent shift in leadership. I think they went through like maybe two or three CEOs in like a 10 year span, which is not good. And they didn't really find stability until the 80s with the introduction of Michael Eisner as the CEO. So but during that time before Michael Eisner came on, Don Bluth expressed that he was, you know, not really happy with the very corporate uh structure and leanings uh that disney was was the direction basically that they were going in and so he left and made his own animation studio don bluth productions and with him he took animators like gary goldman and a few others and eventually he had a little team and so he put out a few a few movies that began to kind of give disney a bit of a pause you know not really like they weren't feeling necessarily threatened or intimidated, but they weren't ignoring that Don Bluth was beginning to make a little bit of noise in the animation industry. And so eventually Don Bluth Productions, if you're wondering, they're responsible um, or Don Bluth is responsible for movies like An American Tale and The Land Before Time and of course Anastasia. And they these films are definitely kind of understood in the animation lexicon as like not Disney, but still good like a good non-disney film but it, it very much borrows from the stylings of disney the structure the pacing and like the choices and narratives like it's very disney without being disney you know what i mean so eventually don blues aligns himself with steven spielberg and amblin entertainment and he creates a couple movies for them. And then Amblin Enterta Entertainment uh, goes into animation like for themselves with a very short-lived studio named Amblimation, um, which I think they put out like Balto and An American Tale 2, Five Will Goes West, you know, not necessarily the hits for animation, but like not too bad. And then eventually after that, Don Bluth leaves Amblimation or it, it kind of crumbles within itself. And he makes his way to Fox, Fox Family, I think it was like Fox Animation or Fox Family, something like that. And that is with Fox is where he makes Anastasia. So there is this, like I said, this movie very much exists in a very weird time within animation where it's this guy who is definitely like giving Disney a run for their money as far as quality of film and is showing that Disney is not the only player in the game. Um, as far as notable animation studios. And he had been doing it for a pretty, for a pretty long time, pretty consistently. And by the time Anastasia came out, we were beginning to see the 
that that idea kind of expressed upon a little bit more. So you began to see like your DreamWorks is like coming out of nowhere. Pixar was beginning to to pick up steam. So there was more competition for Disney and they weren't just the only they were proving that they weren't the only players in the animation game pretty much. And a film like Anastasia definitely is a tentpole for that, I would say. Anastasia comes out and it's a big hit. First of all, I would like to say that the music for Anastasia is ridiculously good. Like it it definitely borrows that Disney Renaissance feel with just like great songs. Like a lot of people I think know Once Upon a December, which is kind of like the big ballad piece. It is Anastasia's I Want song. It is her wanting to remember her, 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 her pet. Well, I guess and Once Upon a December and Journey to the Past are like two I Want songs. Um, but it's kind of just known as like, the, the music of Anastasia is so, so well done. The music was done by Stephen Flattery and David Newman. And they absolutely, it just like captured the essence of like the leaning on the Broadway tradition, but still just being a, like a really beautiful piece of music style that again had been really perfected by you know people like Howard Ashman and Alan Menken for Disney films and they were able to bring that to to Anastasia um the choice to cover Anastasia I think was a very interesting one I remember reading an article about um the success of of Anastasia and everything and Don Bluth and Gary Goldman said that they like they chose to cover Anastasia knowing that they weren't going to be historically accurate um because at the time the there were like kind of murmurings about what had happened to her but ultimately the story and the reason why people talk about Anastasia uh it stems from a pretty dark place like it is the it's about the execution of this royal family in the face of a um a complete and utter like revolution and they were the Romanov family was you know assassinated in a very brutal way so like obviously they couldn't be super historically accurate with what actually happened the same goes for Hercules a lot of people talk about oh it's not historically accurate it's like literally you could not make a movie about greek gods and goddesses and not have it be the craziest sexual thing you've ever heard in your life so like yeah of course of course it's not historically accurate um but i digress that's a story for another day but yeah anastasia they made the film knowing that it wasn't going to be super historically accurate um and really it's not super their fault because like I said Anastasia is based off of a 1956 film of the same name um called Anastasia and Anastasia was played by Ingrid Bergman and then that was based off of a French play and basically it's all centered around the story of this woman who claimed to be the lost princess Anastasia for like 50 years um she claimed that she was the lost princess for a very long time and it wasn't until really like around when Anastasia the animated version came out that people began to kind of poke holes in in her story like people kind of just went with it for a very long time because there wasn't 
really a way for them to say yay or nay on whether she was the the lost princess um and it wasn't until obviously with the advent of many different technologies that we got that answer but for a long time this woman just she was just like yeah i'm i am the lost princess and so and so so many things were basically made off of off of that story so the woman's name was anna anderson and she was basically like i said claiming to be the lost princess for a very long time and she actually got like held up in a couple courts in in germany um for a while because she was making this very bombastic claim obviously like it the impl- the historical implications of this woman claiming to be this lost princess are you know it's very damning and people they can't just like kind of take her on her word they're just like okay well we have to prove this somehow and because this went on for so long the 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 myth of Anastasia was able to get so far ahead of her and ahead of everyone else that for a long time we kind of just had this running narrative that there was this lost family or at least and I'm speaking solely I want to say I'm speaking solely from like an American point of view I cannot attest to what other countries especially in Russia like what the narrative was there around the the Romanovs and Anastasia specifically uh because I I, I don't have that experience, but I'm going off of an American experience of what we knew this whole situation to be. So like I was saying, for, for a long time, um, we kind of just understood that like, oh, like Anastasia is this lost princess. She's like in hiding somewhere. She was able to escape and everything like that. And really the truly the only reason why um, this narrative was able to go on for so long is because technology was not nearly where it is today. So to kind of go back a little bit, so I, I'm talking a lot about the Romanovs and I'm, you know, everything like that. So just to give you a little bit of a background as to what is going on here, Russian royal family, Nicholas II, Tsar Nicholas II, his whole family gone, assassinated um, in an uprising by the Bolsheviks. And so they are taken to this, this, this house, like they are kidnapped from the Royal Palace, taken to this house. And that is where they are assassinated pretty much. Um, and it is, it was thought that because Anastasia's remains were not with her family, they thought, okay, Anastasia must have escaped. And so that went on for a very long time. It, it kind of, it very much, I think, was used as a tool to kind of keep hope that this royal family, like, has someone to keep the lineage going. And it, then it kind of, like I said, it got away from so many people. And so many people saw that there was opportunity, really, in being able to say, like, oh, I am the lost princess Anastasia and the the wealth and fame that comes with that because the descendants of the Romanovs obviously want to know if there's anyone from the family left. And so a lot of people, mainly Anna Anderson, were able to take advantage of that to a certain degree. So we're moving, obviously, we're moving a little bit away from the film. The film is great. I think you should watch it. Um, if you haven't seen it in, in a while, it's a good movie. Like 
Is it accurate? No, but it's a good movie. Um, it's got Meg Ryan. It's got John Cusack, which I don't know. I was talking to a couple of my friends about this actually yesterday from when I'm recording this. And I, we got on the subject of like how, how, like, how did Meg Ryan and John Cusack not do like a live action rom-com? You know what I mean? Like that just seems like a natural, like a very nineties pairing. And it, it did technically happen via Anastasia, but like that, I don't, the fact that we didn't get like a You've Got Mail-esque thing with Meg Ryan and John Cusack, I'll never know. I'll never know, but that's story for another day. Um, but it is, it is a, it's a good movie and it's, I watched it probably last week and animation wise, it's stunning. I think the budget for it was around like, yeah, the budget for it was about $53 million. You can definitely tell. And they did make that back. Um, I think they made $58 million domestically and then like over a hundred million dollars, uh, worldwide. So, uh, they made their money back and you can definitely tell that the budget was there for sure. Uh, 20th Century Fox put a lot of lot of money into this and and Don Bluth and Gary Goldman did what they did, um, which is, you know, bring this very beautiful style, very beautiful stylization and characterization. Um, very packed cast. Like I said, it's Meg Ryan. It's led by Meg Ryan and John Cusack, but it also has Angela Lansbury, uh, Christopher Lloyd, Kelsey Grammer, a young Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, she plays young Anastasia for like two seconds. Um, Hank Azaria, who plays Bartok, which his character got a spinoff of this movie called Bartok the Magnificent. Um, and I actually saw that movie before I saw Anastasia, but again, completely different thing. Um, Bernadette Peters, J.K. Simmons, like it's just so many, so many people are in, are in this movie and you're like, how did they fit all these people in this movie? And they, they managed to, to figure that out. I don't know how, but they did. Um, so yeah, like I said, I recommend the movie. And if you haven't seen it in a while, it's, it's pretty good. Like if you turn down the part of your brain that's like, this is probably not the most historically accurate. It's a great film. So like I said, that is its animation history. And obviously now we're moving into its place in history history. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So I can't say with certainty that this movie led to kind of a reinvigoration in the interest of the case of Anastasia. I'm not going to say that, but I do think it is very coincidental that around the time that this movie came out, um, there was a re reinvigoration in the interest of <laughs> Princess Anastasia. So like I mentioned earlier, for so many years, people were kind of able to take this very fantastical retelling of of the events of Anastasia and, and how she is this lost princess and everything like that. And 
by the late 90s, technology had finally caught up with us. And so we were able to actually get to the bottom of of this case. For so long, a lot of the proving of evidence around this uh, was, you know, like a a family member of a family member, you know, like a test of, you know, different questions. You do see this in the movie um, where they're asking, like the people, Dimitri and Vlad are asking different um, actresses, like these different questions and everything, just to see like how committed are they to playing the role of Anastasia. And so that really did happen where there was a lot of, you know, questioning, asking, do you know this person? Do you know that person? What memories do you have? Things like that to test the knowledge of whoever it was to see if they really were Anastasia. So it's a lot of word of mouth, a lot of take me at my word, you know what I mean? And that presents its own set of of issues because people can be really good liars. So where does this, where does it, where does the tide tend to turn with this? Where's that shift? That shift comes in the late nineties with the advent of DNA evidence, pretty much like DNA evidence in a certain degree had been around, but the the rigor of the testing wasn't where it needed to be necessarily. And so by this time, we were able to identify things like, you know, bones and teeth and things like that for DNA and be able to trace them back to people. And so that's essentially, that's what happened. Um, it, this is from a Britannica article talking about uh, the the fate of Anastasia, the Duchess. And they say, quote, the mystery took an intriguing turn in the late 90s when scientists using DNA evidence identified bodies in the 70s as the czar, his wife, and three of their daughters. The bodies of Alexis and one of his sisters, however, were not among those found. Because the discovered remains had been burned, it was hard to say which Romanov daughter was absent. And the news revived speculation that Anastasia had survived. In 2007, the two missing bodies were found, and soon afterward, they were identified as Alexis and probably Maria. Anastasia's remains were likely one of the bodies that had been found earlier, end quote. So that after this entire thing led us back to being able to use DNA analysis to confirm or deny whether uh, whether or not Anastasia survived or not. And it was it came back pretty much that she hadn't survived. So this tale had gone on for about 90 years at this point. And in that 90 years, we got plays and books and movies, obviously, Anastasia, that were made off of the this very fantastical tale. Um, and it, it does... It, like I said, it is a very just interesting phenomena that in the late 90s within the, the world and medium of animation, there was this this urge or this want to um, ha- like explore darker subject matter via animation, especially animation intended for for kids. And Anastasia is is a part of that. Um it's just a very interesting movie. And I've always thought it was very interesting because it is a, a subject matter that I'm like, why would they choose to tackle it? But then at the same time, they're not really tackling it so much as they're using that backdrop, that cultural backdrop, as a way to tell a, a very romantic and inspiring story of this young woman 
finally finding her family and finding love and finding herself. Um, I think uh, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman said in an uh, interview when talking about Anastasia that they really mainly wanted it to be more like My Fair Lady, um, very Pygmalion. Like they wanted it to be more that than it was super duper historically accurate. And I do think that they they nailed that. Um, there, It's definitely more about the emotions and the feelings of Anastasia, which is this woman who has lost her memories and she must reclaim them and find them um, than it is doing an accurate retelling of the events of the Romanoff family. Uh, it's just, like I said, very interesting movie. It exists in a very interesting time. Um, and it is worth taking a look into, number one, watching the movie. Like I said, it's good. And number two, just looking at the context surrounding the movie as well. Um, if you're more in, from an animation perspective, it comes at a very strange time in animation. Um, also, forgot this. If you're wondering how Anastasia wasn't bigger than, than it was, um, you can guess a company that rhymes with Mizmi, uh, definitely had a part in that. And this is something that they are known for to a certain degree in the nineties. Um, yeah. So in the, in the nineties, Disney had a very, uh, this is all alleged, allegedly, 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 there was kind of a, a, uh, a hankering that Disney had or an inclination that Disney often had with suppressing the films of their competitors. And uh, it seemed to always be between Disney and Fox. And ultimately, obviously, Disney got the last laugh with Fox because they now own Fox and Fox is a part of them. But in the 90s, there were a couple of movies that were capable of having success and we're probably going to do pretty well at the box office, but they were sabotaged in a way. So in the early 90s, there was a film you might know. It stars Robin Williams and it's called Fern Gully. Fern Gully was released. It was a, a story that was kind of centered around environmental conservation and, you know, pollution and everything. It was a lot. It was heavy on that commentary. And a lot of people, I think, have have seen it and really like are very like they remember it quite a bit um but Fern Gully had Robin Williams as as batty he played played this bat that was like tested on and he escaped from this like testing facility and so Robin Williams signed on to play batty before he signed on to play uh, another character one of his most famous characters which is Genie and Aladdin so Fern Gully and Aladdin came out the same year Robin signed on to do Fern Gully first. And uh, that company didn't quite like that Robin was playing another animated character for a different studio at the same time as he was playing Genie for Aladdin. So there were allegedly active attempts to keep the production of Fern Gully from happening at certain points. Um, there were attempts made successfully to, um, like buy out a building where they were, Fern Gully was set to do the recording sessions. Um, they like rented time and space to record for, for the film. 
and that company would just straight up buy the building. And so now you can't record anywhere. Um, there were just multiple attempts to to stop the production of this of this movie, just full stop. And eventually, through come hell and high water, um, they were able to to get it out and it was released. So the, just to let you know that this is the 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 energy that this company is operating on at the time. So a similar kind of thing happened with Anastasia and that company that rhymes with Mizmi. So basically in, in 97, um, Anastasia was, was set to be a pretty big movie. Like they had a lot of ad dollars behind the film. Um, the soundtrack was doing really, really great. Like at the time they had, um, like Aaliyah, she sang the title song, like Journey to the Past. So the soundtrack was getting numbers off of that. Um, the, I think she, Aaliyah even sang Journey to the Past at the Oscars that year or the year following around that time. So like the anticipation for Anastasia was, was pretty high. And so this coupled with the fact that uh, DreamWorks was actively getting ready to release their first film, there was a bit of panic going on at Disney. They were not going to be the only ones on the playground having a, a fun time. And that was not fun for them. So they basically were like, we're going to pull out all the stops and we are going to, um, we were going to basically destroy this film in any way that we possibly could. On a smaller scale, like during the Wonderful World of Disney, which was airing at the time, uh, they would just straight up ban ads for, for Anastasia. They would not run them. Um, they refused to. And on the larger scale, the week that Anastasia was released, Disney re-released The Little Mermaid. And so why, you may be asking, Bobby, why would they release the Little Mermaid of all the movies to to re-release. Well, they were doing a re-release thing at the time. Like this was something that they had done consistently. But way back in in the late 80s when The Little Mermaid came out, that was the movie that Disney kind of used to basically put their thumb down on on Don Bluth and say like no, you are not going to beat us. We are we are in charge here. Like you you will not ever beat us at the box office. The Little Mermaid was was that movie. That was their kind of retaliation to the success of An American Tale and everything. Like as the Bluth production studio was starting to build up a little bit of steam, um, Disney came back with with The Little Mermaid. It was just like, uh, uh-uh, you you will not, uh, you will not beat us to to do that. So, less than ten years later, with the the week of of Anastasia. They re-release The Little Mermaid in theaters on the exact same day as Anastasia. Now, you may, in a contemporary movie landscape, this might not matter all that much because you're like, well, you can watch The Little Mermaid, the Little Mermaid whenever. Who cares? Like, why were why would people opt to go see this re-release over this new film, which is still a problem now technically, but in this time. Um, re the re-release of movies was a lot bigger than it was now. If a movie, say for instance, um, 
The Little Mermaid comes out. Literally the only way to see it if you want to rewatch it is to get the VHS. But other than that, like it's not really like playing on TV. It's not like obviously like not in like any kind of syndication or anything like that. Like re-releases were a really big moment. And for as big as The Little Mermaid was, having it re-released in theaters for the first time since it was originally run in theaters was going to be a, a pretty big deal. So to re-release it on the day of Anastasia, knowing that it's this massive film and knowing that the public anticipation for it is going to be at an all-time high, that took the wind out of the sails of Anastasia completely. Like People were clamoring to go to see Ariel again in theaters, and Disney knew that. And they did that to allegedly purposely undercut the success of, of Anastasia. It's nuts, guys. It's absolutely insane. So to wrap everything up, Anastasia is, is truly just a film that perfectly examines the insane period of time in filmmaking that was happening, especially within animation specifically. Um, that coupled with the insane history and fallout or not fallout, but like the insane kind of effect of Anastasia and the lore of Anastasia that eventually led to this kind of scientific breakthrough um, in in solving the, the mystery of the Duchess Anastasia. So there's so much stuff that's gone on and happened because of this because of this movie and it's just it's it's a super fun movie like drama aside it's a really fun movie it's the music is great it still holds up for the most part i think it's worth a watch it's an interesting watch but it's worth a watch well i hope you enjoyed this week's episode afternooners if you don't know the afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations. You're an afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. If you had a good time, it helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go and watch Anastasia, if nothing else, to hear Hank Azaria's very funny but interesting uh, accent that he did for the character of Bartok, which, fun fact, Bartok was originally written for Woody Allen. Yeah, and they decided to not go that route. Thank God. Um, I can't. I, I I'm not gonna remember all that stuff. Bestie, I get it. It's a lot of stuff on on your mind right now. It's a lot of stuff on my mind right now. So I get it. And I put all that information for you in the description down below. You're welcome. For this episode, it's it was powered by the Anastasia soundtrack. I mean, there's no there's no mincing words about it. Uh, the songs specifically, "Once Upon a December." Uh, journey to the past and learn to do it is an underrated song it's so good learn to do it and a rumor in st petersburg all phenomenal songs all great the whole soundtrack wall-to-wall bangers check it out it's really great well i hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive later days friends Hi. 
just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.